Colossians 3, chapter, uh, 3, verse 1 to 11. Let me read that. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, things, these the wrath of God is coming. In these you, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie, with one, lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no, no sorry, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay, here's what Paul is saying here very simply. In a very quick nutshell, we could have a 30-second sermon if we wanted. Um, it is this. The Christian life is made up entirely of the pursuit of God, the seeking of God. And it's a bit of a paradox because he spent the whole book so far, the whole letter, saying um, Christ is yours. You have him. And yet he's saying he's yours, but you must continue to pursue him, chase after him, know him more. Because, of course, he's infinite. And so you're never really done knowing an infinite God. And this is the, the, the crux of, human, of Christian life, the pursuit of God. And Paul goes on and even says that you're, yeah, the Bible says this, you're never happier than when you're pursuing God. And he says the Christian life is made up of two complementary pursuits. Um, and the language he uses here in Colossians is the, the pursuit of putting something on and the pursuit of putting something off. And what you're putting on is this new life you have in Christ. You are a new creature, but you are in, in the process throughout your life of getting used to putting that on and, and growing in that Christ-likeness. But part of it is not just putting on Christ, but it's putting to death that sin that Christ has already killed. So what Christ, essentially what Christ is doing in us as Christians is he's saying, I have broken sin. You, you have no reason to sin any longer, but you still do because you actually still love sin. And so the process that God takes us through in our Christian walk is what the Bible calls sanctification, which means holiness. But make sure you don't confuse this idea of sanctification with being morally perfect. He's not trying to make you a morally perfect being. That's not the primary concern of sanctification. The primary concern of holiness, like in the Old Testament, holiness was to set something apart from the world and for God. So you can think about it as becoming perfect if you'd like, but really what's happening is God is coming into the church, coming into the believers, and saying, I am now going to make it so that you're nothing like this world. I'm going to set you apart from the world. And of course that means behaving differently, there's moral obligations, all these things. But this is what life is. It's a constant effort of the Christian to seek God, to be more like him, but also put to death our love of sin that lingers in us. And so he calls us to do something because although God is the one who makes you like Jesus, you have an active part in it. Now, let me explain that because I don't want anyone to think that you sanctify yourself, that you bake yourself like Christ. So an example might be, uh, think about getting a massage. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but let's think of it. If you get a massage, listen, I hate massages, by the way. I have, I have trouble being touched by people who aren't my wife, um, and it's weird. So that's fine. If you're a masseuse, I'm sorry, or a massage therapist, I guess we're supposed to call you now. 
Um, but think about that. You're on the table, and the person is doing what they do, you know, really hurting you, um, usually. At least. So this my, did I have a bad mas massage therapist? Um, but there's pain there. They're working on you. However, you do have to do something, right? You can't stay rigid, as I like to sometimes. I'm like, and, um, you have to. So you have to do something. You have to submit to the massage by not being tense, right? But not just that, you also may have to move, you know, turn over, do this, move in this direction. However, despite the fact that I am active in the massage, what wouldn't happen is I wouldn't go home and tell my wife, I just gave myself a massage. I wouldn't say that because I know that my activity in the massage is not me massaging myself. I'm just submitting to the hands of someone who knows better. And this is what sanctification is, that process of becoming less like the sinner we are and more like Christ is God doing all the work but he does say, I want you to submit. I want you to be a part of us. There's things you have to do here because he wants us to be changed. He doesn't want to change us like that. He wants, to conform. he wants you to be formed in his image to then start to live like him, not because you have to, but because you want to. And so we're active in this process. And this is what Paul is explaining here. He says there's these two pursuits, putting on the new man and putting to death the old man, he says. And then he gives us a hint as well at the end of what God is doing through this. Why is he changing us? Why does he take people out of the world and make them like himself? What is he trying to accomplish? Well, Paul tells us that too. And the three things he's doing is he's, he tells us we're here to put on the new, put off the old, and then he tells us how God is putting the world right through this process as well. Okay? Let's walk through that. Putting on the new. Now, Paul begins this passage by saying two very simple things. If you know your grammar, he calls them imperatives. Imperatives are, are, are commands. Do this. And he starts by saying, seek, right? Seek uh, the things that are above, and then set your mind on things that are above. Now, we're not going to focus on what those things above are this week because Paul outlines them in verses 12 to 17. He goes through a list of those things that are above that we're supposed to seek. Instead, we're going to focus on what does it mean to seek and to set our mind on them because that's where he puts his emphasis in this passage. Um, and those are important things, but we'll get there, so let's, we're going to hold off just a little on what those things are, but we can say this. The things that are above are the things of heaven, the things of Christ. It's those things that are above with Christ. See, we're seated with him. What are the things that Christ values? What pleases God? That's what we're to set our hearts and our minds on. And when he says seek and set, seek and uh, what is good and set your mind on it, those words in Greek are pretty helpful because the word seek is the word desire. It's the same word, for instance, that is used when, um, when Paul, uh, not Paul, when the Gospels say that Jesus says, seek the kingdom and all else will be given to you. All else will be thrown in, right? When he says that, he's not just saying desire it, but he's saying chase after it. And yet the word in Greek is desire. It's desire a thing, but it's never just emotional longing. So, for instance, as well, when Jesus speaks about the demons that are exercised, he says they go out of the place they were exercised from, and then they go through the world, roam through the world, seeking rest. Think about that image. They don't just desire it, they're actively looking for it. So there's both action and emotion there. When the Pharisees and the religious leaders want to kill Jesus, it says clearly the same word again, that they sought to kill him, meaning they thought about it, they desired it, and they were actively attempting to do it. And so the first thing we're to do is to desire God in that way. Now we're going to walk through that. 
And the next one is to set your mind is the word phreneo. If you know the word phreneo is uh, skull, uh, thinking. It literally means to think. And so Paul is saying the Christian life is marked by desiring and thinking about Christ. He is the object and subject of your desires and your thoughts. That is Christian life. Pursuing him, thinking about him, dwelling on him. Now what does that mean practically? Well, let's go through that as quickly as I can. First one, we're desiring him. Christians were once repulsed by God, and now we desire him. And the reason we desire him is because if, you were, if, you're, not, if you're saved, you desire Christ. If you don't, if you don't desire Christ, pray, because you ought to desire him. Let me, I'll use a quote from a guy named John Piper, theologian and pastor. Here's what he says about this connection. Saving faith is the confidence that if you sell all you have and forsake all sinful pleasures, the hidden treasure of holy joy will satisfy your deepest desires. Saving faith is the heartfelt conviction not only that Christ is reliable, but also that he is desirable. It is the confidence that he will come through with his promises and that what he promises is more to be desired than all the world. And this is why in a minute, Paul later says coveting is a sin, and he says, which is idolatry. He says, coveting, desiring something that isn't God, is idolatry. Because idolatry literally means thinking that something other than God is what you need. So if you think, I love God, I love God, but I must have that promotion. I must have that woman. I must have that house. I must have that lifestyle. You have now moved into idolatry because you have desired something more than Christ. And this is the, the, the simple baseline. Now, um, here's the, where the, the challenge comes, the, the, the practical part comes. Desiring Christ with everything does not mean having no other desires. And it doesn't even mean spending more time with Christ than you do with other things. And I know that sounds culturally odd. But I'll use the example of this golfer named Scotty Scheffler. You know, everybody knows I like golf. Scotty Scheffler is a Christian man. Not perfect, he's a sinner. But he's a golfer. And he won the Masters last year, and that's his wife, Meredith, both Christians. They're in their 20s. Really interesting couple. When he wins, when he's, the day before he's about to win the Masters, he's, he's leading going into the final round, and he says he's having a breakdown in his hotel. He's terrified, he's scared, he's never had this opportunity before. And later he explains what was going through his mind and how, why he keeps, you know, he's, he's lauded for having a very good personality, very good temperament for golf, very laid back, he's very level-headed, and he thanks his wife and his faith. But here's what he says in an interview after he won. The reason why I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God, and that's all he's done, and all that he's done in my life. So for me, my identity isn't just isn't a golf score. Like Meredith, his wife, told me this morning, if you win this golf tournament today, if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, she goes, I'm still going to love you. You're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you and nothing changes. So all I'm trying to do is glorify God, and that's why I'm here, and that's why I'm in this position. Now, He's not perfect. But you see, here's something interesting. Scotty Scheffler has certainly spent more time on the golf course than he has reading his Bible. And I'm not insulting him. You have all spent more time at your work than you have in the Word. Right? If you're working 10, 12 hours a day, you're not spending 10, 12 hours a day in the Bible. And that's not an insult. Because what it means to desire God with everything is not that golf or uh, or, or your volunteer work or your hobbies or your family are second to God. That's the wrong way of thinking about it. Instead, it's that everything is seen and appreciated through the lens of your ultimate desire, which is Christ. And so whatever you desire, 
The goal is that it now passes through your ultimate desire, which is Christ. So if, you're, if your passion is gardening or your work or going for drives or grocery shopping, whose passion is grocery shopping? Um, <laughs> we have counseling available for those of you who have, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> see how I don't write things down. Um, but whatever that passion is, it's not about putting Christ into more time necessarily. It's saying, God, you have called me to this. You've gifted me to teaching, to doing whatever it is. How do I now see your glory through that work? And so putting God first, desiring him, is desiring his glory in all that you do. And I was reminded of my family yesterday, I think it was yesterday, of a funny story. Once upon a time, Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, was in a, in a bar. If you know Charles Spurgeon, he liked to drink his beer and smoke his cigars. He had a big beard. And there was a, another pastor there with him who was yelling and complaining about how he hated cigars because cigars are of the devil and it's sinful. Spurgeon said, show me in scripture where it says I can't smoke a cigar. Right? So anyway, you don't have to agree with Spurgeon. But what Spurgeon did say that was great. He says, you can say what you want, but the moment we start to try to decide what isn't in scripture and what is, we start to then have our feelings rather than scripture guide us. He says, so, and I quote, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. Now... There's <laughs> a clap, but I heard a clap. Um, I'm not suggesting you go smoke stogies. That's not what we're saying. But what I'm saying is, do we understand that desiring God above all is to say, how do I take all those things he has put in me, that desire for everything that is good and noble, that, that not your desire for sin, but the things that are good, and how do I then turn that good desire into something that brings him glory? And that is primarily what we think about when we're talking about glorifying God. And this is where, I love this, because at the end, in verse 10, um, as we do this, so where am I? So, as we desire to come, the, reason, the way you become a person who desires God more is knowing God more. And then the more you know him, the more you desire him. The more you desire him, the more you want to know him. And it works cyclically. I've said this in an earlier sermon, because Paul says it earlier. But the verse 10, he says, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so Paul's saying, the more we get to know God, the more we will want to desire, will desire him and say, God, you know, I love gardening. How do I bring glory to you in gardening? An example might be, you know, we have a big garden, and uh, there's a, a gentleman, an old gentleman, who's often at our home, and he, um, he, he, he can't understand why Sarah makes the garden pretty. It's not just rows and rows of plants, but there's walkways, and there's order, and there's colors here and there. And he's just like, just make rows of food. That's it. Very practical. But that's, and I'm not knocking him, there's, there's a place for that. But there's an understanding of, no, no, this isn't just to grow food, it's to glorify God. The beauty of what he has done. There's an aesthetic here that can also help uh, glorify God. It's not just creating food, but, glorify, but glorifying God in the colors and in the, in the order of it as well. God is a God of order. And so that's what we do when we desire God. We desire him in above, yes, above all, but we want to see everything we do filtered through him to glorify him. And the second thing he says is not just seek what is above, desire it, but think. Set your mind on it. Think about it. And of course, what you think about is what you desire, and what you desire is what you think about. I said at our Bible study this week, where your mind wanders to when you have nothing else to think about, that's where your heart is. If you have nothing to think about on a Saturday morning and your first desire is to go and daydream about a bigger house you wish you had, listen, that's where your heart is. Where you, where, when your heart has freedom to go anywhere, it will go where it wants to go. And so what we think about is important here, not just a little, thinking deeply about God 
is an act of worship. And, you know, and I say this often, I know you guys have me as your pastor. I'm a nerd. I get it. And one of the, one of the things we have to watch is when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what we do is we take that passage and we pull out the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we say, what does it mean to love God with those things? What we leave out is the all part. He doesn't just say, love him with your heart. He says, all of it. Not just some of your mind, all of your mind. And it doesn't matter if you have the Einstein brain or the Carl brain. Whatever brain you have, it better all be subverted to the glory of God. Every bit of it. And so the right thing for you and I to do is to always be thinking about God and to try to think about him. And now, this is hard because we live in a culture that glorifies productivity and activity rather than thinking. I think, and I'll say this, I, I don't think, I think we've lost the art of thinking. And it's difficult. We're distracted. And you've all done it too. And here's how I know. If you come into the church looking for a meeting with me, and you walk into my office, and I am talking to somebody, I've got books around me, or I'm shuffling papers, you think, okay, he's working. If you walk into my office and I have my feet on the desk and I'm looking at the ceiling, how do you think? What do you think? Do you think, boy, what are we paying this guy for? What's he doing? But that's because you and I have drunk the cultural Kool-Aid that says, no, 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 activity is productivity. Stupid thing to say. It's not true. Plato didn't become Plato. Jesus didn't become Jesus. We know he learned. It says he grew in knowledge from an an adolescent into manhood. He didn't become that way by always making chairs or whatever he did as a carpenter. Thinking is required. You do need to sit sometimes in quiet and sometimes ponder the deep things of God, but sometimes also just ponder a flower, ponder sunshine, ponder the wind, ponder whatever. Be not ashamed of thinking ever because you are meant, you're given brains to glorify God with. And God is not pleased by a faith that doesn't, that's, of course you can just accept God without any thinking, surely. But not because you're lazy, not because you refuse. Take whatever brains we have and press it into God and say, how do we think more about him? How do I uh, use, it's maximum exertion. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. How do you then say, I'm a student. What does it mean to be a student to the glory of God? What does it mean to be a parent? What does it mean to be a parishioner? What does it mean to be a pastor? What does it mean to be a doctor? What does it mean to be a slave? Whatever it is, how do I do it to God's glory? And this leads to those very wonderful conversations. I know a lot of the young adults are having about work. How do you work for the glory of God when you're in a job that doesn't glorify God? How do you do that? Do you not think about it? Do you just leave and go to a Christian ministry? Of course not. You think, you think, you think. And God wants us to do this. So here at Redeemer, you will be pushed at times. You will, I joke about when I played baseball, I would always try to go to the batting cage and hit five miles per hour faster than I knew the guy I was facing could pitch. Because then when I faced him, I could hit him without a problem. And so, like it or not, here's a secret to what I do every Sunday. I'm always pitching faster than you can hit. I'm trying to just drag you up, getting, making you a cut. I'm forcing you to think. You may not like it. You may spend your time saying, what's he thinking about? I can't believe it. Or whatever. I don't mind. That's fine. We need you to think. I will press you to think about what God is saying about your life and your marriage. And if you want to go to another church because you don't like it, I cannot stop you. But we must be a thinking people. And anyone who is not helping you think is a palliative care nurse who is just here feeding you until you die. That's it. Just make you feel comfortable. Let's just make it, let's just pump the morphine in until you die. It's not what we're here to do. We're here to know God, to think about him, 
to be what you're going to see in the third point, radically converted for his sake. So, we're here to think and desire God. That's what the Christian life is marked by, partly. The next part is putting off the old man. So Paul says very plainly, put to death what is earthly in you. And then in verse 7, he says, you know, once upon a time, it was understandable that you're a sinner because you didn't have Christ. But now you do. So those things that were once native to you are now alien to you. And sin, being alien to you, should be treated like an alien. So uh, not nanu nanu alien. Um, <laughs> if, you know, if anyone knows the nanu nanu, you're old. Okay? If you don't know it, you're just like, what's he talking about? Uh, <laughs> Mork and Mindy, everybody. Mork and Mindy. Um, <laughs> so what is alien? If you're at your home and a stranger walks in, what do you do? Do you just say, hey, come on in. You must, yeah, I'm sure you're fine. Let's just have a, uh, here's my, the keys to my car. No. You would understandably see a, a, an alien, somebody a foreign to that house, and you'd be skeptical. And if they mean you harm after, after checking them out, you would kick them out and lock the door. And so Paul is saying, once upon a time in verse 7, it was okay. You, it was understandable. You were a sinner. But not anymore. Now those things you were native to you should now be alien to you. And he says the only way to do this is to put them to death. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But let me say that Paul here is echoing Jesus. He is doing something in, in the different styles. See, Jesus worked in stories much more. Jesus preached topically. Paul preached expositorily. Very different. Paul's saying very clearly something, but what Jesus says in John 11 is exactly what Paul's saying here. Jesus raises Lazarus from the tomb, from, the, from, from death. And when he does it, here's what he says. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound in, with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Now you're thinking, how does that make sense? Here's why. When you're dead, you wear burial clothes. When you're alive, you don't. The reason he has to take off the burial clothes is because you're no longer dead. It would be un inappropriate to wear burial clothes while you're living. So Lazarus does not raise himself, but now that he is raised, he is called to take the burial clothes off. You're alive, live like you're alive. Christian, says Paul, you're alive. You've been raised with Christ, verse 1. Live like it. And so putting off the old self is him saying, take off the burial clothes. You have to do that. God wants you to be active because he has broken the power of sin, but you still love it. So now what he's doing in the process is he's breaking your love of sin. And I know we don't like that language, but listen, if you're addicted to pornography, it's because you love pornography. If you're addicted to money and, you, and your status and your job and your family, you love those things and you love them inordinately. You love them more than you love Christ and God is in the business of setting those emotions right. And so this is the act of putting off the old self that he talks about. And the problem, of course, is we don't like to. Um, I, I've, my, I don't want to, pardon my last quote, but Augustine in his book Confessions, um, Augustine is his 4th century, 5th century uh, theologian and brilliant guy, and he wrote this very honest book called Confessions that I think every Christian should read. And in it, he's so, ob so blatant, he says, I, once, I prayed for you to, to take away my sin, but not too quickly. So here's what he says. I had been extremely miserable in adolescence, miserable from its very onset. And as I prayed for you to, for the gift of chastity, I even pleaded, grant me chastity and self-control, but please not yet. I was afraid that you might hear me immediately and heal me forthwith of the morbid lust which I was more anxious to satisfy than to snuff out. Now, it's funny, but it's true, isn't it? 
How many times do we come to Christ? I mean, some of us have been there for a long time. And there's things in our life that we say, yeah, it's a sin, but I'm going to submit other sins. I'm going to put other sins on the chopping block first, the ones that I'm content to, deal, to lose. But there's some here, let me, not quite yet. Not quite yet. I won't tell you which ones. You all know. We all know what those things are. And so Paul says, sin is incredibly powerful. So powerful that you cannot do it alone. And it actually requires a strategy of getting rid of it. You can't just simply say, oh, it'll go away on its own. It's not the way it works. Sin doesn't go away on its own. It likes you too much. And you like it too much. So let me go as quickly as I can through a man named John Owen. He was a Puritan. And he wrote a lot on the topic of the mortification of sin and all these things. And he outlines a simple process. Oh, simple. Okay, let me, let me forget that. It's not simple. But a process for how do you put sin to death in your life? How do you take those things that you're still clinging to and actually kill them? It's a wonderful process. It is brutally hard. But here's what he says as quickly as I can do it. The first thing he says is you have to evaluate the sin. You evaluate, meaning you look at it and you say, how deep is it? Is it just one that I, it's, it's just a little part of me, or has it gone so deep into me that it's actually easier to do it than to not do it? How deep is that sin? Um, and that's an important one, because depending how deep it is will determine how deeply you'll have to cut to get rid of it. So he says, first, think about the sin soberly. Second thing you do is you fill your mind and your conscience with the guilt and the weight of the sin. He says, this is, he says don't jump too quickly to forgiveness. Yes, Christ forgives you. But if you jump to, forgive your, to, to, to embrace the forgiveness of Christ too soon, you haven't yet actually killed the sin. Because when you jump... This is an example. If a man cheats on his wife and comes into my office and says, I miss her, tell her to, bring, to take me back, he's not repentant of the sin. He just wants to get everything to be right again. He's, just, he's dealing with the emotion. He doesn't really want, he's not lamenting the fact that he has wronged a woman who deserved better and he's broken a covenant with her and with God. He's upset that he has... People don't like him, and he's not home. That's the problem. And John Owen's smart enough to say, and sinner enough to know, don't jump too quickly to forgiveness. Dwell on it. Know that your sin is horrible. You may not think it. The world will not tell you it's horrible, but it is. It was enough to kill the Son of God. That's how bad it is. And you have to dwell on it, because if you don't, you will then go to the third step, which is longing, and you won't do it for the right motives. When he says to long, he says, now, if you've actually realized how, how terrible your sin is, now what you long for is not relief of, from the pain, but reconciliation with God. And now you're actually prepared. You long for the right thing. You want forgiveness. And now you cry out and you scream out and you pant for it for the right reasons. So that's the third thing. The fourth one then is consider. Then it's, you look carefully and say, how did this sin get to me? And this is important. If, if, if it's something serious, well, they're all serious, but think about alcoholism. How did that come to you? Is it because your family has a long line of it and you're, heretic, you're, you're genetically disposed to it? Or is it because um, there was trauma in your life? Is it because when you're around certain company, you can't help but gossip? Why is it that that sin found its root in you? Think about it carefully. Because if you know, and then this brings us to the next one, contemplate, if you know what you were doing just before you sinned, then you can see when it's coming again. For instance, did you know the primary reason men turn to pornography in North America is they turn to it, the thing they're doing just before they turn on the porn, the thing they're doing just before is they have been rejected by their wife. And I'm not blaming women. This is not what we're doing. But when men feel rejected by their wife, they then think, well, I'll go somewhere where I'm not rejected, where I'm wanted. 
where no one's going to turn me down. And they do that. Now, if that's the sin you're dealing with, you have to think, what was I doing just before? So when that moment comes into your life and you feel that rejection again, you can anticipate, I know what's going to happen now. I'm going to be tempted to do this thing. I can't let it happen. And you have to fight against that. So contemplate, consider, then battle. When sin comes, you must cry out to God. John Owen's wonderful. He says, God is in you and his power is near at hand. Cry out, he's right there. You must, the moment you see him, the moment the alien comes into your house, you don't wait for him to sit down and set up a seat at the table. You immediately call the police. And in this case, the moment you smell the sin coming, you cry out to God because he is there. Or you cry out not just to God, cry out to your church. He's given us one another to help in these situations as well. But battle, you must fight the sin. Like it or not, you have to fight it. Next one, second last, meditate. He says, then what you do is you flood your mind and your heart with the thoughts of God. Humility comes not from thinking of yourself as small, but thinking of God as big. And so you flood your mind, he says, it's meditate, it's not Eastern meditation. He's thinking, you flood your mind with gospel songs. You flood them with scripture. You flood them with the thoughts of how grand and beautiful and big and powerful God is. And you basically drown out the sin. You must do it. Lastly, expect. God will send peace. He wants it far more than you do, and he knows your need of it more than you do. And so expect that he will respond because he's faithful and good. And again, he, he always reminds us, don't speak peace into your heart before God does. Sin is strong and it is deep and it will not go gently. Let God speak peace into you before you do it to yourself. Simple, right? It's so hard. But this is a man, and this is a, what God, Paul is saying. Paul is saying, take seriously your sin. Remember that you guys see me in the sweater I wear sometimes? It says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's John Owen. That's the truth. Sin is always prowling at the door. Let me close here. What's he doing in all this? Why is God calling a people to himself, freeing them from sin, and then commanding them and helping them to overcome their sin and become more like him? Well, the hint comes in verse 11, the last part of this, and then he elaborates on it in Ephesians. So in there, he sa- this is where he says there's no divisions in the church, right? There's no divisions, there's no Greek and Jew and so on. And what he is saying is, hey, in this new, this new church, in this new people I am forging, I am forging a new people that are nothing like the world. There's no divisions anymore. They don't judge each other on anything but Christ. And because Christ is all to them, and he is in all of them, there's no division anymore. We have, we're united by a common father. And when you think, well, how does, and he ends it with that beautiful little line there when he says, um, call back up, that Christ is all and he is in all, right? And he uses that same language in Ephesians 1, 22 to 23. And here's what Paul says there. And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now look at what he says at the end there. He gives himself to the church, the church which is his body, so the church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You and I are being described as the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here's the miraculous thing that Ephesians outlines in much more detail, but Paul's hinting at in Colossians. God has this plan. He's going to fill the universe with himself. And one day he's going to come and do it properly and fully and completely. But in the meantime, what he's doing is he's filling the world with himself by filling you with him and then pushing us into the world. And so the reason he has saved you, the reason he is calling you to put your sin to death and to live like him is, yes, for your sake, but you're already saved. 
He's doing it because he's trying to change the world. And he does it by filling the world until he returns. He's doing it by filling the world with little images of him. Why do you think earlier Paul says we're being renewed in the knowledge in the image of our creator? Image of our creator. Why that language? He's touching back on Genesis 1. The intent originally to make us the image of God and to make us fill the earth with his glory is being completed in Christ and renewed. And so he's doing all of this. You're not just being told, hey, get your life in order for your own sake. It's no, no, do this so you reflect the glory of God so that you can fill the world with the glory of God. That's what we're to do as a church. Our primary concern here is not to grow Redeemer. I don't care about the number. I really don't. I want to see new people come to faith. That is vital. As far as how many people come because they like our music better or the preaching better or the, mu- or the lighting better or our cake better, I don't care. I mean, that's fine. It's great. I'm happy. But that's not the primary goal. Our goal is to preach Christ and Him crucified, to deepen your relationship with Him, to make you little images of God so we go out and glorify Him. That's our goal, first and foremost. Everything else, very much secondary. And that's what He's called us to. So if you're a Christian, you've been raised with Christ for the sake of the world. Now let's take seriously that call and help one another do it better. If you're a skeptic, I'll leave you with the words of C.S. Lewis. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Seek God. Set your mind on him. Anything else you seek will only rob you of everything. Every other idol will sap you and deliver nothing. Christ alone, he is the object of our, of our faith object of our work, object of our desire, object of everything. Let's pray.